0: Hello everyone and welcome to Nashville Anthems, and thanks to Lakeland Sutter and the Tennessee Valley Skeet Boys for today's theme music. In this podcast we seek to map out the DNA of 80s and 90s country music, and we do that by dissecting one song at a time. Now I may have to ask you to turn down the throttle on your airboat motors, or maybe even moor it for a bit, come and sit upon a cypress stump with me, because we're about to spend some time camping out in the John Anderson song, Seminole Wind, or as I like to call it, Milton's Florida Pronunciation Guide. You know, I googled this song just to kind of see what would come up, and you know how Google has that section of questions and answers that comes up kind of toward the top of the search results? And the first question in there when I googled this song was, is Seminole Wind about Florida? Why yes, yes it is. Folks, this song may love Florida more than Garth Brooks loves a rodeo, and we are going to get into that today. But yeah, no kidding. At one point in my life, I started having occasion to drive through the state of Florida, and the song Seminole Wind helped me understand that, for example, M I C A N O P Y is not my canopy, but Micanopy. So, John Anderson helping you on road trips in multiple different ways. So, as we get into this song, let's give some credit where credit's due. The song was written and recorded by John Anderson. First example so far of a song written by the singer, and not even co-written at that, John Anderson was truly the singer-songwriter on this piece of music. No one else had a hand in this composition. This is John Anderson's song. Seminole Wind was recorded by John Anderson and released in August of 1992 on the album of the same name. That album also has the classic Straight Tequila Night, which I hope we get to at some point, and a, a personal Melton favorite, When It Comes to You. Anybody remember that song? I love that song. Well, the song "Seminole win went to number two in October of that year, 1992, beaten out by, anybody want to guess, Winona. No One Else on Earth. 1992 was a good year, folks. And the song was produced, along with the whole album, by James Stroud. So as usual, we like to talk about key features of these songs, and we're trying through looking at key features of each song to understand 80s and 90s country music as a whole, hoping that we see some themes, some common features, and maybe understand some ways some of these features tie together. So let's get into it on Seminole Wind. So the first key feature that I notice on this song is the driving rhythm. And that driving rhythm is all the more apparent because the driving rhythm, toward the beginning of the song, it interrupts the intro of the song, which is a very slow, melodic, piano-violin intro. The rhythm of the song, once it gets into it, is all about motion, it's about movement. That motion, that movement are created by several instruments and what several instruments are doing. I wanna highlight the driving, moving bass line of this song. There's lots of eighth notes walking up and down the scale as the bass player transitions from chord to chord. It's part of what keeps the song kind of moving forward. This drum beat is very, very steady. It's heavy, it's straight, it's one, two, three, four, not syncopated like we talked about in Rodeo where beats and accents happen on upbeats and at different times. This is pretty much one, two, three, four, very steady, and the drum is just kinda consistent throughout the song. It's also a driving, kind of aggressive acoustic guitar strum throughout the song that just relentlessly goes up and down in eighth notes, up, down, up, down, up, down, and drives the song forward. And if you listen really closely, there's even a banjo in there. It's kind of doing what that typical banjo thing, you know, just constantly going through those moving 16th note patterns. The banjo is doing that on this song. Ever since the days of old, men would search for wealth untold. And all that is just motion. It just contributes to a feeling of forward motion that just permeates the track. I want to contrast that again to the previous song we looked at, Rodeo, which had a lot of syncopation. And it grooved, it's not like it was sitting still. Rodeo had a major groove, and it had a groove that made you want to move. But the groove was more like a back-and-forth, it kind of conveys like a back-and-forth lurching, like you were on a bucking bronco, we talked about that in the song, because of those unsteady, kind of herky-jerky, syncopated-type things that were going on. Contrast is also with the first song we looked at two songs ago, How Can I Help You Say Goodbye really the opposite in terms of motion of Seminole Wind. It was where Seminole Wind feels always like it's going forward. Uh, how Can I Help You to Say Goodbye it was really inviting the listener to be still, to slow down, to be calm. Sitting with mom, alone in her bedroom. So Seminole Wind feels more like it's running, or at least brisk walking, like it's going somewhere. That's really the feel of the rhythm of the song. Another thing that comprises that forward-moving-driving rhythm is a four-chord pattern that repeats throughout the whole rhythmic part of the song. There's no variation. It is the same four chords over and over again. So more on that to come, but for now we're just going to note that that repetition adds for that feeling of constant forward motion, like it's it's turning, like a wheel turning forward. We also noted that the song has that piano-violin intro that is repeated essentially, or at least it's reprised, at the end an outro comprised of those same two instruments, violin and piano. And that piano violin duet outro, it intrudes on the driving rhythm of the song. And in doing that, it highlights that driving rhythm all the more because when the outro starts, it feels like it brings that driving rhythm, that that forward motion. It feels like it drives it to a screeching halt. That's because it takes over without even being in the same part of the phrase it's not playing the same chords that pattern that i was talking about it even breaks up that pattern so when it comes in it's playing a different chord different part of the phrase and just kind of capsizes that forward motion it's very intrusive like it felt us getting carried away by our enthusiasm and is forcing us to stop and think And uh, that sense kind of does remind you of How Can I Help You to Say Goodbye. And I almost wanted to say it sounds like that. I almost wanted to say that the intro and outro of this song start to sound like Patty Loves' How Can I Help You to Say Goodbye. But you know, you know it really doesn't. Uh, yes, it's piano and it's strings, which is what dominated the instrumental track of that song. But the attack is much heavier of both the piano and the violin on this song than it was on How Can I Help You to Say Goodbye. This intro and outro are more assertive. Like it's kind of forcing you to pay attention to the message of the song. So the next key feature I'd like to talk about, we talked about the driving rhythm of the song. Now I want to talk about the plaintive urgency of the song. The song has a message that it wants us as the listeners to give ear to. It's not just a story this time, like how can I help you to say goodbye. It's not just a celebration like a rodeo. This song is urging us to pay attention to the desperation and gravity of its message. And one of the main ways the song accomplishes this is through the use of what I'm going to call crying instruments, instruments that through sustained notes with pitch bends, usually within the human vocal range, which in a way mimic a sound, something like a distant, detached, plaintive cry. And the two instruments that do this are the violin and the steel guitar. Both of these are stringed instruments that are naturally able to sustain to a degree and to bend pitch. So the violin is able to do this because it's a bowed instrument, and by being bowed, it's essentially able to sustain a note continuously like a cry. It's also a fretless instrument, meaning it's um, unlike a guitar, the neck of a violin doesn't have discrete places that the fingers of the player's left hand press down to adjust the pitch of each string. Rather, each string has a continuum of pitches it can play, so the player can slide his or her finger down the neck or up the neck while bowing a string and and thus bend the pitch of the note that's being played. And that, that also, that effect, that bending, sustaining and bending, that bending also somehow can evoke a feeling of crying, and I think it does it on this song, as the violin really dominates the song instrumentally. Uh, The second, as I mentioned, the second note I want to highlight is the steel guitar that does this. I think the steel guitar is an instrument that is almost entirely associated with country music. It's a guitar that you play sitting down, looking down at the strings as the the guitar essentially lies horizontally on its back on like a little stand. It's often, uh, maybe always, played with a slide held in the left hand that functions similar to how the fretless neck of a violin plays that we were talking about, it means that there's a continuum of pitches rather than being discrete pitches. And then like a violin, a steel guitar is plucked, so it doesn't have the sustain of a violin, but the timbre of a steel guitar really can only be described as a cry. The steel guitar produces a twangy crying sound that I feel like may virtually define the sound of country music as we know it from this era. At least that's kind of a stereotype, but you know, it took us three episodes before we got to a song that even had a steel guitar, uh, and it's really used sparingly even in this song. It's used in just a couple of little spots. So we shall see. We shall see how the steel guitar fits into this era and this genre. I listened close and I heard the ghost of Osceola cry but I didn't rate the violin, which is prominent through the song, and then in, in his occasional touches of steel guitar. I certainly contribute to this plaintive character that this song has. The second element I want to highlight that contributes to this plaintive urgency is John Anderson's breathy voice. John Anderson has a distinctive delivery. He has a good fit for this song, which I guess makes sense as he wrote it. And breathy is the best word I can come up with to describe John Anderson's vocals, so not just on this song, but on every song I've, I've ever heard John Anderson on. He, he almost eases into the vowels it's like a like he starts to say like john Anderson, something like that. Flood they made their plans and they the land now the are going dry. It's like there's hesitation in his voice, but I think it somehow adds to the overall conviction in his delivery. And really it's that conviction, it's, that's why the plaintive nature of the song also has a sense of urgency, especially when you combine that with that driving rhythm that provides that constant sense of forward motion. A lot of that effect, too, comes from the melody John Anderson is singing. He sustains that top note, that be natural, over and over in the song, including every time he says blow and wind. So, blow, blow, wind. so the imagery of wind, of breath, of spirit permeates this song. But hold that thought. More on that idea in a moment. But in addition to that breathy quality, his voice, once he settles into the fullness of the vowel that he's singing, John Anderson's voice has a richness. It's similar to what we talked about a lot with Patty Loveless's voice. It's like a round richness. I struggle to come up with better terms to describe it, but he shares that with Patty Loveless. But the bottom line, John Anderson's voice just has a lot of character. And I think that unique character is a lot of what sucks you into this music, and this song in particular. You're feeling and responding to that plaintive urgency by taking heed. This is an interesting voice. I want to hear what it has to say. That's kind of the way his voice functions in this song. And to point out, too, it's, it's almost just him. There are really minimal background vocals in this song. What's there, it's subtle and sparing, and it's only used in the chorus. Uh, there's some high harmony in there, which I think may be sung by Anderson himself and maybe, maybe harmonizing with himself on the chorus. And then there are also some oohs that are sung by multiple voices in the chorus as well. But both of those elements are truly in the background. The, the lead vocal is much more prominent on this song, and you have to strain a bit to hear them, actually. I actually missed it the first few times. I was almost ready to say that Anderson's lead vocal was the only vocal on the song. That's not quite the case, but it certainly feels like a solo vocal. It feels like Anderson is somewhere by himself singing this. It's not like, How Can I Help You to Say Goodbye? which you remember felt like just Patty Loveless and you. This song really, it just feels like just John Anderson. It almost feels like you're overhearing him as he kind of just ruminates over this tragedy that he's describing in the Florida Everglades. A lot of that kind of solo feel, I think, also is related to the fact that. There are. As far as I can tell, there are not a lot of effects on John Anderson's vocals. I don't hear any double tracking of the lead vocal or any other real heavy effects, echoes, things like that, and I don't hear any pitch correction, something you'll know I'm always thankful for. Speaking of tragedies, how tragic would it be to pitch correct vocals with as much character as John Anderson? (laughs) Ugh. Anyway, let's note that every song we've covered so far, all three, have been sung by a kind of pure, unadulterated voice, if you will. Or at least, let's say that what background vocals they were were pretty faint, pretty sparing. That's something to look for as we keep probing what makes 80s and 90s country music tick. The vocal arrangements, are they all going to be as straightforward as these first three songs? So as we continue to look at the plaintive urgency of this song, I'm going to return to that four-chord repeating pattern that we talked about in the previous section. So not only does that four-chord pattern contribute to the driving beat of the song that gives that forward motion, but it also contributes to the plaintive urgency, and I want to demonstrate that. So I'm going to play the pattern. So this is the four-chord pattern that repeats throughout the whole rhythmic part of the song. The chords are E minor, G, D, A. If you're like me and think of chords as numbers, that is the two chord, the four chord, the one chord, and the five chord. So what I want you to notice is that that pattern never really resolves. And the reason that's true is that the one chord is in the middle of the pattern. The one chord is in the third position of that four note pattern. Normally when you 've got a pattern like this you would expect the one chord also called the tonic chord it 's the chord that matches the key the song is in the song's in the key of D major you expect that chord to fall at the beginning of the pattern and the other three chords if it's a four chord pattern like this just kind of revolve around that first chord that tonic chord that doesn't happen here because the first chord is actually the two chord so this is what that pattern would sound like if it did resolve. So I'm going to play the four chords that comprise that four-note pattern, and then instead of repeating back to the first chord of the pattern, which is an E minor, I'm going to resolve it to the D. So this is what that would sound like. So we'll go E minor, G, D, A, D. You hear that kind of resolved? One more time. It's another way to think of it. Let me play the pattern kind of flip-flopped. So I'm going to play the same pattern, the same order, 2-4-1-5, but I'm going to play it with the one chord at the beginning. So instead of being 2-4-1-5, I'm going to play it as 1-5-2-4-1. So here in both cases, there's a resolution. The song's pattern doesn't do that. It just keeps going back to that 2 chord, that E minor, rather than resolving to the one chord, that D major. So, I want you to think about and note how that lack of resolution interacts with that feeling of forward motion that we talked about earlier that this pattern contributes to. So it feels like you're going somewhere, but it also feels like you never get there. The song has a feeling not just of going, but it's seeking. Seeking and not finding. So that feeling really matches the message of the song, which is really describing a problem and really just lamenting the problem. It's not offering a solution. It's not settling anything. It's not ending the meeting with the definite action items and resolution. It's just meditating. It's ruminating and lamenting. So we never feel settled as the listeners. We're only invited to consider, to join the speaker in considering this issue. You know, in fact, there's even a hint of ambiguity about the key this song is in. I mentioned the song is in D major, and I I think it is, and that's why I say it's just a hint. I don't think you'd get too much argument here that this song is in D major, but the chord order, with that tonic or one chord in the middle of the pattern, as I noted, it also makes you wonder if maybe the song isn't in D major, but actually E minor. It sort of feels like, because the pattern goes E minor, G, D, A, that maybe the, the actual key is E minor. In fact, the very last chord of the song, the chord that the piano plays that kind of walks down, it's not a D, it doesn't end the song on the tonic, but it actually ends on an E minor. So again, I don't think the song's in E minor, I'm pretty sure it's in D major, but there is that hint there, it's kind of, there's a hint of ambiguity there. It is part of what makes the song sound unsettled. So, by the way, bonus points. If you notice that the pattern that we've been talking about starts on the 2 minor chord, that E minor. We talked about starting on 2 minor when we talked about how can I help you to say goodbye, which started on, of all things, the 2 major. And we talked about how that's very uncommon, but 2 minor, in fact, is quite common. And here's, sure enough, two songs later is an example of that. I digress. So the third and final key element of Seminole Wind that I want to highlight and discuss is what I'm going to call mystical naturalism. Maybe I should call it natural mysticism. It's both of those things put together, mysticism and naturalism. It, so the song sounds like someone pensively crying alone in the woods, the swamp, in the Everglades. We talked a lot about that earlier, about how Anderson's breathy vocals highlight breathy, windy imagery in the song. And that's a lot of the naturalistic feeling of the song. But I really think the song crosses that line into not just natural, but supernatural and mystical. Like like nature itself is doing the crying. It's right there in the name as this seminal wind that's described in the song. Sounds like some sort of mystical wind blowing across the state of Florida. Not to mention the explicit mention of a ghost crying at the close of the second verse. So, if you are a student of the Bible or of ancient Hebrew or Greek, you may already know this that the words, at least in those languages, breath, wind, and spirit are all very closely related. They're essentially indistinguishable. They're essentially the same word. And I do think that that sort of idea is what Anderson is drawing on here with the mystical, naturalistic imagery of the song wind, breath, spirit. It's kind of all there. Blow, Seminole Wind, the ghost of Osceola. The song is evoking the Spirit of the spirits of nature in the imagery that it's drawing on. Also note those subtle oohs in the background that we talked about earlier. Those ooh background vocals. Uh, they also highlight this effect because there's some a group of background vocalists. But yet they're so faint, they're they're almost suggested rather than stated. They're difficult to hear. Like I said, it took me a few listens just to be sure I was even hearing them. But that's the point, right? It feels like the spirits of the woods and the sawgrass and these things around the lead vocalist as he sings are lending ethereal support to the singer's message and that's all part of the mystical naturalistic feel of the song. Beyond that endemic imagery of breath and wind and spirit, the dominant natural imagery in this song is explicitly all about the state of Florida. As we talked about earlier, the song is in some ways a love song to the state of Florida. And I kind of joked about this earlier, but it does remind you of the unapologetic celebration of Western imagery in Garth Brooks's Rodeo. And I really like that song. The chorus is approaching just a list of things associated with the overall thing. It's celebrating that being the state of Florida. I mean, it does hold together grammatically. It is comprised of sentences, but it is just a litany, a shopping list of things that John Anderson loves about Florida. So I want to list some of them. Uh, He mentions Okeechobee. That's a reference to Lake Okeechobee. It's a large lake in South Florida. He mentions, of course, many times the Seminole tribe, which is a Native American tribe that's associated with South Florida. He mentions alligators, very much associated with the state of Florida. He talks about sitting on a cypress stump. That's a tree that's commonly associated with wetlands. Notice that it's a cypress stump in other words it used to be an image of a thriving natural habitat and anderson seems to be implying here that it simply got chopped down by humans who wanted to exploit it other things in this litany of florida elements anderson uses the word swamp he mentions the town of meconopi which is a town there in central florida and anderson is from central florida so this is worth noting because this does lend authenticity to this song and we talked about authenticity in all three songs it feels like something we really are going to want to explore here what is the kind of authenticity that 80s and 90s country music has. While I want to note here that Anderson is not a poser, he's not pretending to love Florida. Anderson, presumably, because Anderson is from Central Florida, and this love song that he's singing, it sure feels authentic to me. Nonetheless, because as we mentioned earlier, John Anderson was the only composer of this song. And there's something from the heart about Anderson's message here. I want to call out specifically how this has been a part of each song we've covered so far. Patty Lovitz's heartbreak was heartfelt, and that was at least in part, because some of the language she was using and situations she described felt real, they felt realistic. Garth Brooks, we talked about this too, the Oklahoma native, he was able to sing unapologetically and unironically about the glory of a western rodeo because he's from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is at least in some ways a product of that Oklahoma western culture. So, then finally, John Anderson can sing with genuine longing and nostalgia about the history of the Florida Everglades. Why? Because he grew up there. He has actually been to Lake Okeechobee, he's been to Mickinope, and he has definitely even driven the Osceola Parkway. So, folks, that wraps up our discussion of John Anderson's 1992 classic Seminole Wind. Let's recap. We talked about three key features that make this song what it is. The first is a driving rhythm that's driven by the instrumentation. We give the song a constant feel of forward motion. That's reinforced by an unrelenting four chord pattern that just repeats over and over again in the song. And then also by the contrast between the driving rhythm and the slow and melodic intro and outro that are played by the piano and violin. The song also has a plaintive urgency that has a lot to do with the violin and steel guitar and the way they're played and the pitch bends that they are able to do that really kind of sound like human crying and also have a lot to do with john anderson's breathy voice and his delivery and how it kind of sucks you in we also regarding the plaintive urgency of the song we talked about that four chord pattern that repeats and the fact that because it goes two four one five two four one five it doesn't resolve combine that with that forward motion it makes the song feel like it's always moving but never arriving it's seeking but not finding and finally, we talked about the mystical naturalism or supernaturalism in this song is, is permeated by mystical imagery. It sounds like the spirit of nature is adding its voice to Anderson's plea. And added to that is very explicit imagery and just really not even imagery, more just a list of things that uh, describe the state of Florida and seem to suggest an authentic love for the state of Florida from this Florida native. And here again, authenticity is something I think we're going to want to dig into a lot as we continue to explore 80s and 90s country music on this podcast. But that's all we're going to say for now. That will do it for Seminole Winds. So now let's find out what song we'll be digging in two weeks. I'm going to pull up Satellite Radio's 80s and 90s country music station right now and see what's playing. Okay, it's coming up. Ah, uh, the song is the Charlie Daniels band, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. There's a classic for you. I look forward to looking at that with you in two weeks. In the meantime, please don't hesitate to write me at meltonmcmainerberry at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And tell someone you know, maybe in this type of music about us. Maybe they'd like to join in the fun. Bye for now. By the way, what exactly is a gar?